However, one thing that I see designers do wrong is they will come, they will put more than one type of font on the piece, and but they'll be the same font category. Hello, friends, and welcome to The Block, the Building, Learning, and Organizational Culture podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Kirby. On today's show, I talked to Dr. Dawn DePerry about how she blends graphic design and instructional design to be a successful small business owner. She also gives graphic design tips to new instructional designers. So this is a must listen. Hi, Dawn. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Nice to uh, talk to you today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited. So if you could just start by telling me a little bit about you, about your career journey, any fun facts you want to share too? Sure. Well, um, I am a graphic designer and an instructional designer, and um, and I'm Dawn DePerry, by the way. <laughs> and um, I have been teaching in higher ed as an online professor, uh, face-to-face and hybrid, mainly in the areas of visual communication and um, interpersonal communication since 2012. At the same time, that's when I uh, started my own graphic design firm. And only in the last like year or so did we start adding our instructional design capabilities to that. So small business owner, uh, professor, and then uh, my the third thing that I juggle is I work for Harvard University as a learning designer. So do a few different things. Just a few, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's great. That's awesome. So how did you get into like the instructional design piece of it? Yeah, so because I had a background in graphic design, I've like been able to work in a lot of different software. So like I used to teach Adobe Illustrator and InDesign and Photoshop. um, Mm -hmm. And I also taught new media communications where I would teach things like public speaking, um, you know, intro to computers. So long story short, I had a passion for technology and a passion for design. And because I was designing my own courses, I technically was an instructional designer, you know, before I called myself one. And then um, I got my doctorate in um, higher ed teaching and learning. And there I just became really excited about just like the pedagogy, and you know, planning curriculum. And it also had a pretty big component in change management. So um, because at the time we were doing some consultations with businesses on change management, brand Mm -hmm. management, rebranding, things like that. So um, it actually worked out pretty cool that like when I finished my doctorate in March, not that it was cool. I mean, the pandemic is nothing to be, is not cool. I mean, sure. even the death in the family, but um, over it. But um, around the time that I finished my doctorate and I had all of this like deep, you know, knowledge and worked on some curriculum stuff with my dissertation, that's when you know, there was such a need for organizations and universities to migrate their courses online. Mm-hmm. So um that became an area that I was able to be employed in. Um, My first job in instructional design as a title was with the Center for Higher Education Leadership, which is now Brighter Higher Ed. So Mm -hmm. I helped them to develop some professional development courses. And I met Dr. Terry Givens through um, a online space called Gather for Women in Higher Ed. 
So oh, very cool. Yeah, once I had that under my belt, then she became one of my references for Harvard. And um, so I started working for Harvard in October. So that's super cool. Is it as cool as it sounds to work for Harvard? <laughs> <laughs> it is very rewarding. And it's amazing. And I love it so, so much. But it is very demanding. And I just sure. in the sense that like, um, it's a lot of work. Um, and it's like, requires a lot of focus and attention. And so in the past, I've juggled so many things, as I just mentioned. And I really have to, when I'm working on projects for them, just kind of like shut off all notifications, just stay like in, you know, in it. Like because yeah. It can be intense work, but I love it. So it's the perfect amount of challenging. Nice. Yeah, because my first instructional design job was with NASA. And so people are always like, is it as cool as it sounds? Yeah. I'm like, in some ways, yes. But like, in other ways, government just moves really slowly. Oh, yeah. And so like the the software we were using and the tools we were using in the instructional design space were a little bit lacking. Huh. Um, they just hadn't quite caught up to the times yet. But like, it's NASA. So yeah, like it was cool to like walk into work and see like the NASA logo. You know what I mean? So yeah, and this is the best part about working for an organization like NASA or Harvard is you're working with some of the like smartest, like most accomplished people in the world. So like that's so inspiring and exciting. And it just for sure. I love the intellectual atmosphere. I think I crave that. Very cool. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your small business and how that got started. Yeah. So um, before I started my small business, I was going into Manhattan and like working in ad agencies there doing some freelance. Um, I was also employed in publishing originally as a graphic designer. So I did like newspapers and magazines, that kind of thing is where I kind of got my start. Um, and then we live on the east end of Long Island. And going to the city was kind of a bear. It was like a long sure. commute. So um, I met my business partner in my town. She had a daughter the same age as my son. And we one day just started like chatting. We're like, we're both graphic designers. We're both going into the city. We both have this very like high level of quality because when you work for, you, you know, New York City or Fortune 500 brands, you like mm -hmm. bring a certain panache to your work. So we had that, but then we noticed, hey, Long Island advertising doesn't look that hot like we tease it and make fun of it sometimes like this is terrible typography or the you know what were they thinking that's a horrible headline or whatever you know we would tease it so we got in these conversations and we're like you know we're in the Hamptons area and this is where there's like higher end consumers and we have this high quality products why don't we or service why don't we open up shop together? So we looked oh. at each other's portfolios. We realized like we were a good pair, like where she mm -hmm. lacked, I had, where I lacked, she had. And we've been partners ever since. So um, it was like a little niche that worked really well. That's great. So as an instructional designer, I get like this, I guess, I guess you would call it a pet peeve from people like outside of the field when, you know, you're talking about a project or they're pitching an idea. And I can't tell you how many times in my career that this has happened to me because it's that many, but someone will inevitably say, well, then we can hand it off to Heidi and she can make it pretty. <laughs> so I would imagine that as like a combo instructional designer, graphic designer, 
that you've probably heard the same thing quite a bit. Yeah. Um, is it as much of a pet peeve to you as it is to me? I just feel like it's such a gross oversimplification. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's more than just making things pretty. So I like I feel like sometimes people don't realize like graphic designers have a level of education and expertise. And yeah. it's not that they just know software because I know so many programs. They know the theory. And sure. um, so like when you're when you're employing a graphic designer, like you're a, you're employing somebody who's a strategist. So they have the strategy, they have the creativity, they have the theory with color typography um, and they have the business sense, too. Like they're not just artists. Like I consider myself like an artist and like a technician and like a combo, you know? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of yeah course. So I totally get what you say because it's like it's not <laughs> that easy. And, and and if you want a high level, high quality of work, you have to like pay for that, you know? So and you want your end product is going to be better if you do. For sure. And yeah, and I think that at least for me coming from teaching, and maybe this is true of other teachers as well, we have that we've created lessons, you know, we've designed curricula, like right. we've done, you know, implemented different exp learning experiences. But the big hole for me was graphic design. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I'm a crafty person, yeah. but like the digital design space was just super foreign to me. And I thought I like, I know what looks good, but like then being asked to replicate that was like a big hurdle. And I was very lucky early on in my career to be able to work with somebody who had, I think her degree was in like news media, something related to journalism where yeah. it was very like design heavy yeah and so like I would send everything I ever made to her and get her feedback and look at her stuff and it really helped a lot to kind of hone those skills I was missing but what are some of like the top gaps that you see or tips that you would give to instructional designers who really lack that graphic design piece yeah, I see a lot of them. And um, I've been trying to help on LinkedIn where I see like instructional designers make posts about um, typography or color or just it's, it's so many things like there are a lot of gaps. And um, I came up with this idea of creating these courses for instructional designers because I see so many and I think it's because they come from a varied background, like a lot of instructional designers are former K through 12 educators, mm -hmm. or maybe they have a history background, they have a lot of skills that they bring to the table, but they don't have the expertise, the aesthetics. So some of the big things that I see that are blaringly like red flags to me are um, color theory. Mm -hmm. So like color theory is like, is pretty like, it's not that it's complex. I feel like I do a good job of teaching of it. But there's a lot that goes into it. So for example, one thing is just like one tiny thing that I see a lot is putting two colors together that don't have enough contrast. So what that creates is it makes it harder for the viewer to read it. And it's also not accessible. So mm -hmm. if you're like a UDL framework person, which everybody all should be, we have to keep that in mind. So like blue on orange was something that I saw recently, but they were both the same value. Mm. So meaning like if you had like a really dark color and a really light color, then you can see. So that's the idea of contrast. And I have a course all about contrast. But the other thing with color theory is the psychology of color. 
So um, since I've worked with clients and I understand their target audience, I will design for the audience. So I kind of know the psychology, like you don't want to do red and green because number one, there's no contrast. Number two, it's like Christmassy. Number three, it's not good for people who are colorblind. Mm -hmm. So that's just like one example is like color theory alone. So there's so much that goes into that. But like with the courses, they'll be able to like apply it and improve their portfolio in micro learning. So like, that's kind of my goal. Like either you don't have to take a whole semester on color theory, you could just learn a little bit and then like apply it as a practitioner. And I think it'll make a big difference. For sure. Enough to be dangerous, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what about some of the typog? Oh my gosh. Yes. That's the another big typography. one. Typography. <laughs> Yeah. So typography is another, like, I mean, I used to teach an entire semester long course on typography. So um, there's a lot with that. So with online digital spaces, generally, because there's short bursts of text, we want to say that uh, sans serif is the best way to go. However, one thing that I see designers do wrong is they will come, they will put more than one type of font on the piece. And but they'll be the same font category, but they'll be different fonts. And that's a big no, no. So what that what we want to create as designers is something called contrast. And what that creates is conflict. So it's like kind of I this is how I describe it. It, it. it almost makes your piece just not look as professional. But not just that. Imagine you were this is how I explained like the idea of contrast and conflict to my students. But like imagine you're going to paint your room, right? And you paint it. I don't know, green, like a sage green, and it gets dings and you go to the store and you say, um, I just need to get some sage green because I have to repaint over a spot. And they're like, well, what exactly sage green are you getting? Anything is fine. Like just this looks about right. And you go home and you pop it on. You are going to see that spot every time you sit down and it's going to like make you tweak you're just like that's just like all I look at is that spot that looks different it's not the same but it's not a contrast it's conflict and that's what happens when you mix two fonts in the same font category like you shouldn't do Helvetica for a headline and Ariel for a body copy so that's another thing that I try to teach it's like or if you're going to do you want to do bold maybe for the headline and big maybe all caps then you do like not all caps in the regular version of the font for the body copy, stuff like that. Sure. So I won't make you explain serif and sans serif. If you are an instructional designer and you don't know what that means, certainly Google it. Sure. Because it's important to know. <laughs> uh, well, the, the word uh, uh, sans means without in French. And serif, I tell people, is it like little feet. So if you look at a font and it has like the little feet on the bottom and the top, then that's a serif font. And that's the type of font you see in a book, like a Mm -hmm. novel, because it's really long bits of text. Yes. It leaves the the eye from one letter form to another when you're reading over long periods of time. But nothing in e-learning is long text, Um, you know, because if it was, it wouldn't be good learning. You know, it's not, it's a different thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what about some of like the... Some of like the trends that we use in instructional design, I'm thinking of like the like 2D people that come with 
e-learning authoring tools or like some of the little like clip arty things that we put in there. Is there anything that you've seen that was like trendy at one time that people just like have have kind of overused or used in a like a strange way? Does that question make sense? Yeah, like okay. I mean um, I've seen a lot of bad e-learning and I think we've all participated in it. And then I've seen good and in the middle, right? So I think about my experience as being the learner in this case and like what that I've seen that just could be improved. And like sometimes you'll be doing like, say like an onboarding for a company or you're doing like a title four or like, you know, the sexual harassment videos, those types of things. And sometimes what I see as a thing that is blaringly um, could be improved is the idea less is more is better, like minimalist, like, what can you do when you're designing your module or, or your your whatever you want to call it, um, that can take as much out as possible, but still do the job. So mm-hmm. because people think like, let's fill this up, like, oh, here's a button here. And here's a logo there. And here's a character here. And then we should add three more characters there. Like what that does is confuse things but if we can just distill it down to the least amount of pieces possible then we can lead the eye of the viewer exactly where we want and we can establish a clear hierarchy like look here first then read this now click that and that's what we want right yeah and there's even it's like a meme out there that does exactly that where it's like you read this first and then this yes. and, then, and you're like, oh my gosh, it's wizardry. And it's like, no, it's not wizardry. It's just graphic, good graphic design. right? Yeah. And that was something that I was really, I, I was bad at was like letting there be white space. Oh yeah. Right. Like being okay with it. I was like, oh no, like it looks too plain, you know, yeah. but the further you get, the more you realize like you want it to be plain. And when I started studying cognitive load and kind of reading yeah. up on that, it's like, get rid of the seductive details, right? Like you don't want all the stuff in there that takes away from things. And one other thing that I learned pretty early on was like navigation counts. So like if you are trying to be creative, right? Like navigation is not the place to be creative. If you're creating like a set of five courses for the same end users. And I've seen people, they like use like different buttons in different places for different courses. And that's like, that's cognitive overload. Like your learner should not have to take any brain power to relearn the next and back and play yep. for every course, right? Yep. Yeah, consistency. And that is something that is like a key component in both graphic design and instructional design. And one of the things that I feel it benefits me as an instructional designer, because I can look at a course, all of the modules, and right away I notice like, hey, this header looks different, or this next button is here, but it's not there in that plate piece. And you, like you said, you want to minimize the cognitive load and just make it easier for the learner. So it's a good point. So you are currently working on a graphic design course. It's not, re- it's not completed yet. It's not have, launched yet. It's not launched yet, but I have completed a couple. Um, I am in the process of uh, getting people to... Um, 
to submit a form on my website under um, it's East End Advertising. And then when you click on instructional design, there's a form because I um, want to do some beta testing first with a, a few people. So like I'll not charge them and let them uh, take the courses and experience it and then um, try to determine what I want to do after. So this is what I'm thinking. Um, what I have in the courses is if they're micro learning, none of them take longer than 45 minutes. And um, at the end, everybody gets an infographic that sums up what they learned. And then I'll have a community also. And if you participate in the community, then you have the avail uh, ability to like share your portfolio with others, which I think cool. is really helpful um, for graphic design. So, yeah, very cool. I think I signed up for that already. So, okay, hey, cool. I know. Sorry for the delay on that. <laughs> no, no problem. I'm just really excited about it is all. So, yeah. But yeah. I'll definitely share the link to your website in the show notes okay. so that people can start getting signed up or choose if they want to beta test or anything. Cause I think that's a really great thing that you're doing this specifically for yeah. instructional design, because like I said, it's such a, especially for so many people that come from education, like graphic design's not really a job component for being a college professor. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But I see it more and more on job descriptions that they want yes. graphic design skills. And like, sometimes you'll see um, not just the course authoring software that's asked for, but like Adobe products. So um, I've taught Adobe products, like I mentioned for a long time. So I'm um, sure. trying to see how I could teach that as well. My courses so far that I've developed are all theory based. Mm -hmm. um, and it, you can use them with like any kind of software. But um, I am going to do some very specific tutorial type of courses in things like Illustrator and, and related to what type of project you would do for instructional design uh, thing like developing a scene or things like that. Sure, absolutely. Well, and I think that it's becoming more common to use like the Adobe Creative Cloud Suite, almost in place of a storyline or a Captivate these days, because like, it just takes so long to develop courses in those authoring tools. Yeah. And so people are kind of moving to the, you know, less time to development tools, like your Photoshop's and Illustrator's. Yeah. And even like... Even PowerPoint, I've seen so many yeah. stuff on there. Yeah. And PowerPoint's become pretty robust in the yes. last few years. It's like, crazy. I'm like, okay, PowerPoint. Like, I still cringe when I'm like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> but I like, know. No, I used they... to be like, I'm only going to do like Prezi.com and like, you know, right. like I'm, I'm a cool professor. Screw like PowerPoint. Yeah. But now I'm like, actually, I could like even develop a like a scenario based learning with like PowerPoint, like, wow, or an animated GIF. Like it didn't used yeah. to have that capability. It's come a long way. So good for PowerPoint because yeah. like if you like you can couple that with like Adobe Creative Cloud and make some pretty awesome portfolio pieces just with the two of those. Yeah, agree. Because um the other software is expensive and it's like so yeah, it's nice that you can use tools. And I'm always trying to do that because sometimes you have clients that are just like, you know, I only have this like and you have to be creative and that's kind of the fun thing about being an instructional designer like how can I execute this and what tools available to me and you have all these mm -hmm. choices and decisions to make but it's not like your tools like you can never blame your tools like when you're an artist it's like you have to sure. you know <laughs> yeah 
on that note, do you know or do you have any recommendations for like the top free graphic design tools for instructional designers, like in terms of like ease of use, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, so like like I said, if you go to my uh, website, East End Advertising, and click on instructional design and submit that form, you'll get a curated list of some of the top uh, resources. <sighs> so that'll be um, some books, some authors, some websites, um, things like that, podcasts. Um, however, like for just ease of use, I know a lot of people do Canva. So I know that's like uh, something that people are using, but you also like... Uh, one thing with Canva that I noticed is that you have to still know the typography and mm -hmm. the, like color theory and stuff because you can use it. But if you're switching out the colors, you still need to be aware of some of the things that we talked about before. But at least that's free and that's easy to use. So I know that that's one uh, software everybody uses. Um, yeah. So but like I said, if you submit that form, you should get a pretty extensive curated list of stuff. Very oh, cool. and, and just like learn, you know, it's so fun. You can learn like, I think one of the things I have on there is like a movie about uh, Hel Helvetica. Has anybody ever seen that documentary? Um, I had it like in my Netflix things to watch at one point, but I okay. don't think I ever actually watched it. Like I, I just couldn't, it sounds boring. Is it's it boring? not boring. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm a nerd, so I find it exciting, but like it interviews like a lot of different graphic designers that are, uh, you know, really well-versed in their work. And it just talks about so many things like the psychology of fonts, so, and like we talked about with psychology of color, certain colors give you certain, you know, meanings and you apply them for certain reasons. Typography is the same way. Like Helvetica um, is used a lot in like government, you know, so it's very like, sure. kind of like defaults, like you see it everywhere. And it's like, it talks about like the history of it, but it's also a very beautiful aesthetic font in like so many ways down to like even the terminal of like the E is like perfectly horizontal. Um, so, and it's part of the Swiss dot movement. So that's like about minimalism and that those types of, that type of theory can be applied as an instructional designer where we talk about like paring down. So just by watching that one film, for example, you can learn so much and improve your practice in so many ways with typography alone. So I don't even need to ask you like the last question now. Because <laughs> you just answered it, which is perfect. And that's okay. Because I'm going to put a link to that form. And then I'll probably just throw in a link to if the movie is still on Netflix, I might throw that in there too. Um, yeah, directly to the movie. And the but, other bo the other book I, books I would sure. say is the non designers design book, and I have that in my list too. That's a great one. Yeah, because yeah. it talks about contrast, repetition, alignment, and proximity. And in my courses, I'm developing courses all along those theories that just can help you improve your practice in just small ways. Yes, um, the acronym for which is crap. Correct. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> that's how you remember it. Yes. I like that book because it does give you like practical examples and shows before and after. So, um, which I think is really important. And so like when I'm doing my course, so for example, for my contracts course, I show bad examples and good examples. And then I kind of talk about why, because it is graphic design. So it's a very sure. visual. And then at the end, you actually have a file that you could play with yourself. And then like, do the like the optional like assessment and then they, so they get to play with it and like see if their result like their and deliverable 
is good or bad and kind of why and help like self-assess. And if they're part of the community, they can then bring it in there and then they like um, can get feedback from either me or other peers. But I'm hoping to create like a community of practice, like within the community. That sounds great. So as far as like graphic design trends, what I see a lot of times in the, the instructional design world is you'll get somebody who will design a series of courses and then leave them for years. And they're still being used and the content is still being updated. But if you go into this course, you're like 2008 called, they want their course back, right? <laughs> what would be your recommendation for how often to revisit and reconsider updating a course just based on aesthetics? Yeah, there's definitely trends in graphic design and they're kind of a result, like just like art and art history, graphic design trends are kind of along that same line and it's almost a response to what's happening societally. So when you study the history of graphic design and you see the way the movements have happened, they coincide with different things like the Cold War started the propaganda movement and you saw like a certain type of design that way. Um, you saw um, like the David Carson of the 90s were results of like the grunge movement. So you saw, um, you know, a lot of like kind of distressed uh, typography, like layering of just just more busyness. And then like after, because of all of that, it like had a backlash and then it went into more minimalism and more like distilled down stuff. Um, I can name so many different, you know, there was a Bauhaus movement in the 80s and like how that coincided with just like advertising and graphic design at the time. So yes, it's definitely can be dated. Um, Like I remember back in the early 2000s with the turn of the millennial, we were looking at typography that looked like Grand Theft Auto, you know, that font. Yeah. And everybody was using the font. So like, if you look at a course that has that, you're like, um, that's really dated. And just like, I'd say like every like 10 years, you need to update just like any design. Um, so if you watch, um, my, my husband, like sometimes we'll watch those like HGTV shows and when you're like redesigning an interior design and you'll notice the way trends look and within 10 years, like before it was all wood cabinets 10 years ago. Now everybody has white cabinets, right? So, but like eventually it's going to change. So I'd say like 10 years max. um, And then that you're going to see like a whole new movement again. But maybe one of the benefits to having the minimalist design too, is that you do kind of create a little bit more of a timeless look, right? Like, yeah, the classic. Kind of like your house, right? Like if I try not to pick something way too trendy, because I know in like three years, I'm going to be like, why did I do that? Right. Like, I don't want to be ripping out my kitchen cabinets because I went with like the blue color that's super hot right now. Like yeah. <laughs> that in five years, I'm like, oh man, this blue is not going to be, <laughs> it's yeah, we, not going to withstand the test of time. Yeah, I know. I mean, I'm a designer and I made that same mistake. Like we had beige when we first bought and then I was so bored with it. I'm like, I'm going to do like a bluish color. And then literally six months later, I was like, oh, I hate this color. I'm so tired of it. And only recently did we paint it gray. And sure. like, 
Oh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> um, but no, it's interesting. And I agree, there's the classics. So when you take a typography class, sometimes professors, a lot of them that I know, will force you not to use trendy fonts. They'll say, you have to use like the Garamond, the Adobe Caslon, mm -hmm. the Helvetica, like, like the standard tried and true you know, no display fonts, like just, and then you have, if you can be proficient in the, in the classics, I guess I'll call them, then sure. you can, then you will know how to do other things. And like, there's so many things too, like with typography in terms of like how tight the letter spacing is, the kerning between letters, the space between words, like all of that is also like, so typography can get like very minutiae. Um, sure. But the better you are with it, the better your portfolio piece is and the more high end it looks. So sure. those small changes that you can make um, will make a big difference. So like for kerning, the, anytime you type anything that has a W and then an A, there's a big gap. So you want to move those two letters closer together because if you don't, anybody who's a graphic designer or hiring for graphic designer is going to see that in your portfolio and be like, oh, that is like blaring. I noticed that like huh. you're not paying attention to detail. So like just little things make a big difference. And you could see that in people's portfolios, like somebody that like my portfolio after working for over 15 years, looks very different than someone who just started out in college. So sure, sure. It's the same in any field, but what, so what you're saying is we probably shouldn't use Comic Sans? No, yes. No Comic Sans, no Hobo, and no Papyrus ever. <laughs> yes. So keep that in mind that there are fonts that everyone dislikes, much like, well, I'm not going to say the names of any bands. You all know the band that starts with the letter N that everyone dislikes, so I won't... <laughs> them on blast on my podcast but yes there are fonts that are widely hated is that yeah by graphic <laughs> designers yeah and, yeah and some of them are really overused so like papyrus is on like every pizza italian greek restaurant menu <laughs> um it's used in the holistic environment it's just a terrible font it's kind of hard to read it's just it's not a great you know and the comic sans People think like, oh, this is for kids, so I'm going to use Comic Sans because it's like kid-like, but it just looks unprofessional. So, you know, you might want to use something that's like a rounded font instead, you know, like, or like, uh, I don't know, there's other, there's other better solutions. The only place that Comic Sans has really existed and appropriately, which I don't even think is true, is probably in the comic book sector. Sometimes you see it there. But again, that's not good for long. That's not good for the professional sphere. Sure. Absolutely. Well, you already answered my final question of what resources that you would suggest for people who want to learn to graphic design. So those are all the questions I had for you. We're okay. really looking forward to your graphic design course and community. And thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. Have a really great day. You too. Thanks again for joining me on the blog. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and review us on your favorite podcast platform. I hope you'll tune in again soon.